0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reform Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Appendix A, Jr. on the Constitution. Quote, R.J. Jr., 1987. The Constitution gives us a procedural law, not a substantive morality. So anyone can use the Constitution for good or ill. So the Constitution gives us a good procedural manual and is on the whole a very good one. But it has to be the people as they change and govern themselves. The Constitution cannot save this country. End quote. Quote, Otto Scott. 1988. The church was thrown at, into the street by the lawyers of Philadelphia, who decided not to have a Christian country. In effect, they took all the promises of religion, the pursuit of happiness, safety, security, all kinds of things, and they set up a lawyer's paradise, and the church was disenfranchised totally, end quote. Otto Scott, in a prospective essay on the ever-changing U.S. Constitution, warns us against becoming deluded by a, quote, sloganized history of this nation and its Constitution. He traces the history of growing tyranny in the United States in terms of the steady transformation and reinterpretation of the Constitution. Quote, the history of the Constitution of the United States, like all other aspects of our national history, reflects the changes in American society and government through the years. To understand these changes, it is essential to understand that history as it was and ourselves as we are. Yet, we have, as a nation, failed to confront the truth of our history in many important respects. He then calls for the restoration of Christianity to, quote, its early prominence among us. Let us therefore abandon the legend that the Constitution is intact and set about the task of Christian reconstruction and constitutional restoration, end quote. Stirring words indeed, but what he fails to note in this perspective, essay, is something he has called to Rushduni's attention during a taped discussion they had regarding the theological foundation of the Constitution. Scott, over Rushduni's protest, identified the Constitutional Convention accurately, a successful effort by lawyers to overcome Christianity. Thus, if we are to achieve Scott's twofold goal, the restoration of Christianity as it once prevailed in this nation, and constitutional restoration, we must return to the expressly Christian oaths of the state constitutions of 1787, which were the constitutions that prevailed before the Philadelphia lawyers displaced them by means of a new national oath, an oath that openly refused to acknowledge the sovereign God of history who had made possible this nation's experiment in freedom. We must no longer ignore Scott's analysis, quote, "The United States is the only government in the history of the world that has been established without a god, without specifically acknowledging any definition of any religion. The Constitution of 1788 was unique in that respect. No society had ever done that." End quote. Actually, Rhode Island had, but the exper- but that experiment in pluralism was protected by a larger commonwealth. Scott may not have understood that he was challenging one of Rushduni's most cherished beliefs. In 1965, Rushduny had written, quote, The concept of a secular state was virtually non-existent in 1776 as well as in 1787 when the Constitution was written and no less so when the Bill of Rights was adopted. To read the Constitution as the charter for a secular state is to misread history and to misread it radically. The Constitution was designed to perpetuate a Christian order, This was mytho-history on a grand scale, and he never deviated from it. Scott had challenged it head-on. Beginning in the 18th century in northern Europe, anti-Trinitarian humanists combined with dissenting non-state-established churchmen and deists to restructure the existing basis of citizenship, which had previously been explicitly Christian. The two wings of the Enlightenment, Scottish a posteriori, empiricism, and French a priori, rationalism, both proclaimed a new concept of citizenship, citizenship without a required profession of faith in the God of the Bible. It was this new concept of citizenship which was ratified into law in the United States in 1788. The issue was covenantal. The deciding factor was the abolition of an explicitly Trinitarian oath of allegiance by the Constitution. The American Enlightenment Rush Duny, as a disciple of Van Til, should have been more alert to this crucial and early Enlightenment invasion of America, but throughout his career he did his, he did his best implicitly to deny its implications. He viewed early American thought as a mixture of Christianity and natural law, which it was, but not as being at bottom dominated by the key foundation of Enlightenment thought, the doctrine of the autonomy of man's reason. He always refused to say of the Constitution, as he said in Chapter 1 of By What Standard, regarding every other hybrid worldview, every other compromise with the intellectual systems of the self-professed autonomous man. Quote, Quote, behold, it was Leah, end quote. He assumed that the colonists' faith in the Christian God was more fundamental than their faith in Enlightenment thought. This was no doubt true of considerable segments of the population, especially after the revivals of the second quarter of the century. But this was not true of the intellectual leaders of the Revolutionary War era, who were overwhelm- overwhelmingly deist, proto-Unitarian in outlook. On this point, at least with respect to those men who wrote defenses of the war, C. Greg Singer's view of the American Revolution is correct. I think that Henry Marr's assessment is fair. Quote, most forms of the Enlightenment developed among the middle and upper classes of European cities, spread mainly among similar groups in America, and failed to reach the agrarian majority. On the whole, various forms of Protestant Christianity serve the emotional needs of most Americans better. But when we inquire about the beliefs of the articulate leadership of the nation, especially the triumphant Nationalists of 1788, we find that the philosophy of the Scottish Whig Wing of the Enlightenment was dominant. The Two Wings of the Enlightenment. Rush Duny repeatedly referred to the anti-French Revolution attitude that prevailed in the last decade of the 18th century America. He offered this as evidence of an attitude hostile to the Enlightenment. What he never said is that he, w- he was defining Enlightenment solely in terms of its left-wing ideology, the philosophes of France. This is only half the story of the Enlightenment. That in, that in 1798 we find an anti-Jeffersonian, anti-French Revolution outlook among many Americans Those who agreed with Edmund Burke regarding the horrors of the French Revolution should be no more surprising than the fact that we also find pro-French, pro-Jefferson sympathizers. The mere presence of an anti-French revolutionary outlook in the late 18th century was no guarantee of enlightenment-free wisdom. Edmund Burke had been the most eloquent opponent of the French Revolution from the very beginning, and the 19th century European conservative intellectual thought was overwhelmingly Burkean. Yet Burke was surely a representative thinker thinker of the right wing of the Enlightenment. He was a correspondent with Adam Smith, David Hume, and other Scottish Enlightenment figures. His conservative philosophy of pluralism and social traditionalism agreed with their classical liberal doctrine of social evolutionism. This outlook is reflected in Burke's statement that quote, the science of constructing a commonwealth or renovating it or reforming it is, like every other experimental science, not to be taught a priori, nor is it a short experience that can instruct us in that practical science, because the real effects of moral causes are not always immediate, end quote. Burke had been a supporter of the American Revolution, actually serving as the paid London agent lobbyist of the New York legislature right up until the war broke out. His defense was that the British Parliament should, quote, leave the Americans as they anciently stood, end quote. Was this opinion inherently conservative, liberal, or radical? This is why he is such a difficult man to interpret, but he was clearly a man of his age, an Enlightenment thinker. We should never forget that the Scottish Enlightenment social evolutionism served as the model for 19th century biological evolutionism, including Darwinism. F. A. Hayek, as a representative of the classical liberal position, claimed allegiance to the Scots, especially Adam Ferguson, and he made their social evolutionism the foundation of his legal and economic analysis. Hayek's philosophical and institutional target is the other half of the Enlightenment heritage, top-down, a priori French social planning and James McCosh, president of Presbyterian Princeton from 1868 to 1888, invoked a version of Christian apologetics based on Scottish Enlightenment philosophy, and he also adopted a native pre-Darwinian purposeful theological system of geological evolution. Two presidents later, Princeton got Woodrow Wilson. That decision firmly established Princeton University's academic reputation and also ended its previous public commitment to evangelical Christianity. After 1788, the battle in American intellectual thought was between the two rival wings of the Enlightenment. Protestant Christianity had no separate worldview. It was much the same in Northern Europe. The division in social philosophy keyed on the French Revolution. The conservatives clung to Burke. The anti-revolutionary liberals clung to Lamennais and, T- and Tocqueville. The revolutionaries clung to Babouf, the most dynastic politicians hoped and prayed, if they prayed at all, that the rising tide of Napoleonic nationalism could be contained at home by patriotism and kept from turning into revolution. It couldn't. My point is this. The intellectual conflict was between the two sides of the Enlightenment, the decentralizing social pluralists versus the centralizing political revolutionists. The terms of the debate were established by the presupposition of the Enlightenment, autonomous man. Conservative Protestant Christians lined up behind Burke. They offered no explicitly biblical alternative, socially or judicially, to the Enlightenment. By 1790, they were not aware that there was a legitimate alternative. The U.S. Constitution had officially abandoned this alternative in, this alternative in Article 6, Clause 3, The Denial of Natural Law. Ironically, it was with Rush Duny's writings of the 1960s that a se- separate, anti-natural law, Bible-based, Protestant social philosophy first began to emerge. Rush Duny did not understand in 1964 the extent to which his view and Van Til's had broken with the American intellectual and political tradition. That tradition was grounded in natural law and natural rights theory. Rush Duny did not recognize in 1964 what ought to, be the obvi- ought to be obvious to any person who has read the tracts and treatises of the of that constitutional generation, the American deists of the second half of the 18th century adopted the same strategy of infiltration that the followers of neo-Orthodox theologians Karl Barth and Emil Brunner adopted in the 20th century, namely, importing alien religious and philosophical principles under the cover of language that had long been considered Christian. In fact, this process of infiltration, infiltration had been going on in Christianity since the second century, as Van Til argued throughout his career. The difference by 1770, however, was that the anti-Christians in America were self-consciously using these alien Greek and Roman Stoic concepts to undermine the religious and especially the judicial foundations of what was then clearly a Christian society. Christians had long invoked natural law philosophy as a support for orthodoxy. The main framers of the constitutional, of constitutional nationalism, Washington, Franklin, Jefferson, Hamilton, Adams, and Madison, used natural law philosophy as a tool to undermine orthodoxy. Historian David Hawkes is correct regarding Jefferson's writings of the, of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Quote, he did more than summarize the ideas accepted by all thoughtful Americans of the time he intentionally gave new implications to old terms, end quote. Rush-Juny's error, Judicial Continuity I think Juni's error was both emotional and intellectual. He saw himself as one who was calling for a return to the theological and judicial foundations of the American experiment in freedom. This experiment was grounded in the Bible, but in his attempts to trace his own worldview back to the framers, he neglected to adhere to the principles he learned from Van Til, he did not acknowledge the extent of the religious war that was in principle going on in the 18th century American colonies. This is in direct contrast to anti-covenantal historians like Knoll, Hatch, and Marsden, who have chosen to ignore the explicitly Christian covenantal foundations of pre-Constitution America because they can point to the U.S. Constitution as the covenanting document of the nation. They understand what Rush had refused to admit, namely that the U.S. Constitution is judicially anti-Christian it is an explicitly covenantal document, it is also explicitly not Christian. It was designed that way. But if it is not Christian, then it must be anti-Christian. There is no neutrality, after all. Rush Dooney argued that it was against just such a notion of an earthbound final judicial sovereignty that the American Revolution was fought. Such a view of judicial, judicial sovereignty, he said, had been foreign to American political philosophy prior to 1788, For American political philosophy had been primarily Christian and Calvinist. He admitted, however, that the terminology of popular sovereignty had been influenced by the doctrine of the political sovereignty of the people. The problem with this line of reasoning is that there is no way to distinguish judicial sovereignty from political sovereignty in the documents of the Revolutionary War era. The The Delaware Declaration of Rights of 1776 begins with this declaration, quote, that all government of right originates from the people, is founded in compact only, and instituted solely for the good of the whole, quote. The state constitutions usually began with a statement of natural rights. While no other state constitution began with a formal declaration of popular sovereignty, they, had all, they all had a section stating this principle. Section 5 of Massachusetts spoke of, quote, all power residing originally in the people and being derived from them, end quote. This means, it continued, that all public officials are answerable to the people. The same declaration of the people's sovereignty was in section 8. Officials are, quote, at all times accountable to the people. By formally announcing the will of the people as politically sovereign, the constitutional documents revealed the extent to which the older theocratic foundations had been steadily undermined since John Locke's second treatise on government. The supposedly religiously neutral common ground philosophy of natural law was believed in by all participants. The language of political sovereignty is found in all the state constitutions of the Revolutionary War era. It is also found in Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England, the common legal textbook of English common law, which was read widely in the colonies just before the outbreak of the revolution rush noted that nearly 2,500 copies of the commentaries were sold in the colonies in the decade prior to the revolution. Nevertheless, rush never cited Blackstone directly, and one quotation he cited from secondary sources was Blackstone's defense of the absolute sovereignty of Parliament. Had he read Blackstone, he would have had great difficulty in defending his own chapter on sovereignty. Consider Blackstone's general statement, quote, sovereignty and legislature are indeed convertible terms one cannot subsist without the other end quote. he went on to speak of the quote, natural inherent right that belongs to the sovereignty of a state wherever that sovereignty is lodged of making and enforcing laws this is surely the language of political sovereignty i regard rushduni's chapter on sovereignty as the weakest in the independent republic he made it look as though the constitution possessed judicial continuity with christianity It did not. It represented a fundamental break from Christianity, a break that the Lockean concept of humanistic sovereignty and civil compact had been eroding for almost a century. Rushduni always believed that a restoration of constitutional order is the best strategy for Christian reconstruction in the United States. Not only is this impossible eschatologically, time does not move backward, but it is naïve judicially. In his desire to make the case for Christian America, he closed his eyes to the judicial break from Christian America, the ratification of the Constitution. The Christian cultural continuity of America was not to be sustained by subsequent generations. The judicial break with Christianity had been definitive. Rush Duny's Rewriting of Constitutional History It is this covenantal fact which Rush Judy in his 30-year defense of the Constitution as an implicitly Christian document refused to face. Indeed, he created a whole mythology regarding the oath in order to buttress his case. To an audience of Australian Christians who could not be expected to be familiar with the U.S. Constitution, he said in 1983, in every country where an oath of office is required, as is required in the United States by the Constitution, the oath has reference to swearing to Almighty God to abide by his covenant, invoking the cursings and blessings of God for obedience and disobedience, end quote. But what does the Constitution actually say? Exactly the opposite, quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any public office or public trust under the United States, end quote. To put it mildly, this was deliberate deception. Rushduni was determined not to face the facts of the U.S. Constitution, and he did not want his audience to do so either. To his present audience, Rushduni insisted the following with respect to the President's oath of office, quote, the Constitution required an oath of office. To us, this doesn't mean much. Then it meant that you swore to Almighty God and involved involved all the curses and blessings of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 for obedience and disobedience. Nobody knows that anymore. End quote. Nobody knew it then either. Deuteronomy 28 was about as far from George Washington's mind as might be imagined. Rush Juni never offered too much as a footnote supporting such a claim. By tradition, the president's oath of office was involved swearing loyalty to the Constitution with the left hand on the Bible. This was Washington's tradition. It was a Masonic Bible, which had been used by numerous presidents since then. Rush story was mythical. He pretended that the Trinitarian oath-taking that did take place at the state level had somehow become a Christian oath-taking ceremony at the federal level. The opposite was the case, and it was the statist element of the federal oath which steadily replaced the theistic oaths in the states. He wrote, An oath to the men who wrote the Constitution was a biblical fact and social necessity. If this was true, then why did they exclude God from the mandatory oath? They well understood the importance of oaths. Albert G. Mackey, the Masonic historian, writes, quote, It is objected that the oath is intended with a pe- penalty of a serious or capital nature. If this be the case, it does not appear that the expression of a penalty of any nature, what's, whatever, can affect the per" Port or augment the, solemn, the solemnity of an oath, which is in fact the attestation of God to the truth of a declaration, as a witness and avenger. And hence, every oath includes in itself, and as its very essence, the covenant of God's wrath, the heaviest of all penalties, as the necessity, as the necessary consequence of its violation. End quote. They insisted on a required oath as the judicial and psychological foundation of a federal officer's allegiance to the United States Constitution. Their insistence on the importance of oaths was not because they were all Christians, it was because so many of the leaders were Freemasons. They had all sworn to a Masonic self-maledictory blood oath, for there was and is no other way to become a Mason. This is the most crucial neglected topic in the historiography of the Revolutionary War era, and especially the Constitutional Convention, which Rushdie knew about from the beginning of his published career, but which he refused to discuss publicly. The reader must search for his footnotes for the appropriate bibliographical leads, and very few readers do this. He only discussed Freemasonry in relation to the French French Revolution, which he knew was pagan to the core, and in relation to New England in the 19th century. This represented theological decline from a higher standard. This, de- quote, this decline came later, at the time of the revolution and much later New England and the rest of the country shared a common faith and experience. End quote. Mytho-history. Absolutely crucial to his interpretation of constitutional history is what he never mentioned, the legally secular, neutral, so-called, character of Article 6, Clause 3. He pretended that it is the he pretended that it does not say what it says and that it does not mean what it has always meant a legal bearer to christian theocracy instead he rewrote history quote forces for secularization were present in washington's day and later french sympathizers and jacobins deists illuminati freemasons and soon the unitarians but the legal steps towards secularization were only taken in the 1950s and 60s by the us supreme court for the sake of argument we may concede to the liberal and to some Orthodox Christian scholars that deism had made extensive inroads into America by 1776 and 1787, and that the men of the Constitutional Convention and Washington were influenced by it. The fact still remains that they did not attempt to create a secular state. The states were Christian states, and the Federal Union, while barred from intervention in, in this area, was not itself secular. The citizens were citizens of their respective states and of the United States simultaneously. They could not be under two sets of religious law." This is mytho-history designed to calm the fears of Bible-believing Christians as they look back to the origin of the Constitution. Yes, the Framers created a secular state. The secular character of the Federal Union was established by the oath of office. Politically, the Framers could not in one fell swoop create a secular state in in a Christian country. Judicially and covenantally, they surely did. Hamilton made it clear in Federalist 27 that the oath of allegiance to the Constitution superseded all state oaths. That was why he insisted upon it. Yet Rush substitute, substituted the language of church worship when speaking of early American politics. Quote, Officers of the federal government, presidents, and congress worshiped as an official body, but without preference extended to a single church. End quote. This is true enough. But it implies a great deal more than denominational neutrality. It implies secularism. The practice led directly to the rise of religious pluralism in which Christianity receives no notice as the nation's religion. Today's secularism is not simply the product of Chief Justice Earl Warren and his court, let alone the theology of atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare, It was implicit from 1788. It was made official in February 1860 when the House of Representatives invited the first rabbi to give the invocation only a few years after the first synagogue was established in Washington. They invited a New York rabbi since no officially ordained rabbi was yet in Washington. It took took no Supreme Court decision to make this covenantal denial of a judicially Christian culture as a reality. This was not the product of 19th century Freemasonry. It was the product of late 18th century Freemasonry. It was an outworking of Article 6, Clause 3. That a president might, as Washington did, and George H.W. Bush did two centuries later, swear his non-religious oath of office with his hand on a Masonic Bible is legally and covenantally irrelevant. That this same copy of the Bible was used by four other presidents at their inaugurations is surely symbolically significant. An oath, to be judicially binding, must be verbal. It must call down God's sanctions on the oath-taker. This is what is specifically made illegal by the U.S. Constitution. Any implying sanctions are secular, not v- divine. Without this self-maledictory as- maledictory aspect, a symbolic gesture is not a valid biblical oath. Rushduni knew this, which is why he invented the myth of the Levitical and Deuteronomic almost-oath. The presidents have thrown a sop of a symbol to the Christians, one hand on the Bible while taking an explicitly and legally non-Christian oath, and the Christians have accepted this as being somehow pleasing in God's eyes. Covenants and Sanctions Every covenant has sanctions. Without sanctions, there is no covenant. Rush Juni knew this, which is why he invoked Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. They set forth God's sanctions in history. The Constitution is a covenant document. He wrote that the Constitution is not only a law, but also a contract or covenant. The question is, whose sanctions are invoked by this covenant document? Clearly, autonomous man sanctions. Rush Dooney knew this. So he was forced to restructure all political theory in order to create justification of this absence of any reference to God's law or God's sanctions in the Constitution. He moved his he moved his discussion from the oath to mere technical procedure. Quote, Second, we must remember that the constitution can make no man nor nation good. It is not a moral code. It does not give us a substantive morality, but it does reflect a procedural morality." Quote. Notice first that this is basically the same language he first introduced on his 1987 interview with Bill Moyers on national television. His essay uses terms that are found in technical legal discussions. We do not find anything like this language in his earlier writings. Perhaps he consulted a law professor. If so, he weakened his theological case. Law professors are concerned with judicial procedure. Because of this nature of the adversarial system of American law, modern legal theory assumes that substantive righteous judgment is the result of procedurally rigorous but morally neutral confrontations between lawyers. Contrast this outlook with what Rashtuni wrote in 1975. in the Anglo-American tradition of jurisprudence, the biblical revelation has been decisive. The purpose of law is to codify and enforce the moral system of biblical faith. The common law embodied this purpose." Quote. What he refused to ask was this, what if judicial procedure is not religiously neutral? It should have been an obvious question for Ashtuni. He made it his standard practice in all other areas of his writings to deny the possibility of religious neutrality in any area of life. If judicial procedure is not religiously neutral, then it is either covenant keeping or covenant breaking procedure. Covenant breaking procedure will tend to produce immoral outcomes. It is not some neutral judicial tool. This should be obvious to anyone who has studied Van Till. It was not obvious to Rush Dooney or even a question to be considered when he discussed, discusses the U.S. Constitution he adopted the epistemological position of 18th century humanism whenever he discussed the Constitution. Making people good. Second, notice the shift in his argument. The Constitution cannot make anyone good. This is the standard humanist line against all Christian legislation. Quote, you can't legislate morality. What Rush always maintained is that you can't legislate anything except morality. As he wrote in the Institutes of Biblical Law, Quote, but it must be noted coercion against evildoers is the required and an inescapable duty of the civil authority." Quote. Again, quote, "...law is a form of warfare. By law, certain acts are abolished, and the persons committing those acts either executed or brought into conformity to law." Quote. Of course, the Constitution cannot make anyone good. Furthermore, the purpose of Biblical civil law is not to make anyone good. It is supposed to suppress public evil. Four years earlier, Rush Dooney had stated this judicial principle clear, clearly with respect to the purposes of civil law, quote, it is impossible to separate morality from law because civil law is simply one branch of moral law and morality is the foundation of law. Laws cannot make men good. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But laws can prevent men from doing evil, end quote. Again, while, quote, man can be restrained by strict law and order, he cannot be changed by law he cannot be saved by law, end quote. For 30 years, Rush Juning previously had argued that any other view of civil law is the, quote, works doctrine of all non-Christian religion, salvation by law. This is humanism's view. He always insisted, quote, humanistic law aims at saving men and remaking society. For humanism, salvation is an act of the state, end quote. Again, quote, Man finds salvation through political par- programs, through legislation, so that salvation is an enactment of the state. End quote. What is the Christian alternative? To enforce God's law and God's sanctions in history and only God's law and God's sanctions. Quote, the second aspect of man under law is that man's relationship to law becomes ministerial, not legislative. That is, man does not create law does not decree what shall be right and wrong simply in terms of his will. Instead, man seeks, in his lawmaking, to approximate and administer fundamental law, law in terms of God's law, absolute right and wrong. Neither majority nor minority wishes are of themselves right or wrong. Both are subject to judgment in terms of the absolute law of God, and the largest majority cannot make valid and true a law contrary to the law to the word of God. All man's lawmaking must be in conformity to the higher law of God, or it is false. A fourth aspect of man under law is that law means the true order as justice. The law is justice, and it, it is order, godly order, and there can be neither true order nor true law apart from justice. And justice is defined in terms of scripture and its revelation of God's law and righteousness. The law cannot be made more than justice. It cannot be made into an instrument of salvation without destruction to justice. Salvation is not by law, but by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. End quote. The issue is justice, not salvation. So why did he raise here the spurious issue, issue that the Constitution, quote, can make no man or nor no nation good? It is not a moral code. End quote. This is utter nonsense. Every law order is a moral code. This had been Rush Dooney's refrain for 30 years. As he wrote in the Institutes, there is, quote, an absolute moral order to which man must conform, end quote. He insisted, therefore, that, quote, there can be no tolerance in a law system for another religion. Tolerance is a device used to introduce a new law system as a prelude to a new intolerance, end quote. In this sentence, he laid the theological foundation for a biblical critique of the U.S. Constitution as a gigantic religious fraud, a rival covenant. Quote, a device used to introduce a new law system as a prelude to a new intolerance, end quote, which it surely was and has become. But he has been blinded for 30 years by his love of the Constitution. In a showdown between his theocratic theology and the U.S. Constitution, he chose the Constitution. He did this early, before he had written Institutes of Biblical Law. He refused to alter his views regarding the supposed l- biblical legitimacy of the Constitution in light of his fully developed theology. Prohibiting Judicial Evil He said in 1988, it will do no good for Christians to appeal to the Constitution. Quote, The Constitution can restore nothing, nor can it make the courts or the people just. End quote. The courts are the enforcing arm of the Constitution, which supposedly cannot make the courts good. Of course it cannot. But a Constitution can and must prohibit evil, lawless decisions by lower courts. It must reverse all lower court decisions that are not in conformity to the fundamental law of the land. This is the doctrine of judicial review. This is the whole idea of American constitutional law. Rush Duny knew this. In 1973, he appealed to that crucial covenantal and legal concept, sanctions. He warned Christians that the concept of treason is inescapably religious. Quote, but, no all, but no law order can survive if it does not defend its core faith by r- rigorous sanctions. The law order of humanism leads only to anarchy, Lacking absolutes, a humanistic law order tolerates everything which denies absolutes while warring against biblical faith. The only law of humanism is ultimately this, that there is no law except self-assertion. It is, quote, do what thou wilt. To tolerate an alien law order is a very real subsidy of it. It is a warrant for life to, to, to that alien law order and a sentence of death against the established law order, end quote. The Death Warrant. The framers at the Constitutional Convention issued a death warrant against Christianity. But for tactical reasons, they and their spiritual heirs refused for several generations to deliver it to the intended victims. They covered this covenantal death sentence with a lot of platitudes about the hand of providence, the need for morality, the grand design of the universe, and similar Masonic shibboleths. The death sentence was officially delivered by the Fourteenth Amendment. It had been carried out with escalating enthusiasm since the 1950s. But Rushduni dared not admit admit this chain of covenantal events. He wrote as though everything humanistic in American life is the product of a conspiracy of New England's Unitarians and the radical Republicans of the Civil War era. To admit the historical truth of 1787 and 88 would mean that a restoration of so-called original American constitutionalism would change nothing covenantally. The nation would still rest judicially on an apostate covenant. The constitution must prevent treason. Every constitution must. Treason is always a religious issue. The question must be raised, in terms of the US Constitution, what constitutes treason, Christianity, or pluralism, secular humanism? If you want to see the change in Rush Juni's thinking, consider these observations. Quote from 1973. The question, thus, is a basic one. What constitutes treason in a culture? Idolatry, treason to God, or treason to the state? Because for biblical law, the foundation is the one true God. The central offense is therefore treason to that God by idolatry. Every law order has its concept of treason. Basic to the health of a society is the integrity of its foundations. To allow tampering with its foundation is to allow its total subversion. Biblical law can do no more can no more permit the propagation of idolatry than Marxism can permit counter-revolution or monarchy, a move to execute the king or a republic, an attempt to destroy the republic and create a dictatorship. 1973. The commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me in our polytheistic world. The many other gods are the many peoples, every man, his own God, every man under humanism in his own law and in his own universe. 1988, the Constitution is no defense against idolatry, end quote. The Problem of Dualism Here is a basic dualism of all humanistic thought. Ethics versus procedure in the judicial system. Max Weber, the great German sociologist, spent considerable space dealing with this dualism, and I devoted a section of my essay on Weber to to just this topic in Chalcedon's book, of essays honoring Van Til. I concluded that discussion with this warning, quote, Weber's view of the increasingly bureaucratic, rationalized society hinged on the very real probability of such a subordination of substantive law to formal law. He hated what he saw, but he saw no escape. Bureaucracy, whether socialistic or capitalistic, is here, end quote. In the late 1980s, Reversing his entire intellectual career, except for his early view on the Constitution as somehow an implicitly Christian document, including his commitment to Van Til's presuppositional apologetics, as well as his commitment to biblical law, Rush Duny said that the Constitution's procedural morality can be and is legitimately religiously neutral, and that any interest group can adopt the Constitution's procedural morality to create whatever law order they choose without violating the text of the nation's covenanting document but the text is all there is of the underlying religious foundation. If the text were silent, then there would be no formal underpinning, but the text is not silent. The text categorically prohibits the imposition of the biblical covenant oath and civil law. Let us put it covenantally. What the text of the US Constitution prohibits is Christianity. There can be no ultimate dualism in a covenantal document. It either serves the God of the Bible or some other God. There can be no neutral ground adjudicating between the God of the Bible and any rival authority. Constitutions are inherently substantive. Their ethical foundations are manifested in their procedural stipulations. Rushduni built the case for biblical law in society by arguing that every covenant requires a unique law structure that reflects its concepts of ultimate authority. Sovereignty Rushduni rejected as as heretical nonsense. Calvin's guarded affirmation in the institutes of a universal law of nations in preference to Mosaic law, a position which Calvin rejects in his sermons on Deuteronomy 28. That Calvin was no theonomist is clear. That he was no defender of secular natural law theory is also clear. The The institutes are misleading if read apart from his other writings on civil law. So, following his lead, I cannot but conclude that his distinction, indeed dualism, between the Constitution's supposedly neutral procedural law and the supposedly implicit Christian religious foundations of America is simply nonsense. It is an affirmation of neutrality that cannot possibly exist, if Fantel is correct. Constitutional procedure is the covenantal development of the religious foundation of that covenant, in church, state, and family. To argue that a system of covenantal procedure sanctions is anything but a judicial development of the underlying covenantal law order is to adopt a domestic version of the natural law equity of nations." And we know what rush used to think of that idea. rush did admit that there is nothing in the U.S. Constitution to to protect itself from the transformation from substantive ethical law to procedural bureaucratic law. The U.S. Constitution gives no substantive morality, only a procedural one. This worldwide legal transformation is the crisis of Western civilization, writes Harvard legal historian Harold J. Berman. Yet Rushduny said that the U.S. Constitution is inherently powerless to do anything about it. His assessment of the U.S. Constitution, that it is only a procedural document, is the same as saying that logic is only procedural or liturgy is only procedural, or that the church government is only procedural, or that family government is only procedural. In short, he was saying what Van denied, that form can be segregated from content. Ethically speaking, Rush wrote in the Institutes that the basic premise of the modern doctrine of toleration is that all religions and moral positions are equally true and equally false. This is exactly the worldview which the framers wrote into the Constitution when they abolished state religious, religious tests for holding federal office. I cannot avoid the obvious conclusion. If a defense of the U.S. Constitution as being somehow inherently Christian, or in some way fundamentally conformable to Christianity, is the position of the Christian Reconstruction movement, this means the suicide of Christian Reconstructionism. Rush Juni said at best, quote, The modern concept of total toleration is not a valid legal principle, but an advocacy of anarchism. Shall all religions be tolerated? But as we have seen, every religion is a concept of law order. Total toleration means total permissiveness for every kind of practice, idolatry, adultery, cannibalism, human sacrifice, perversion, and all things else. Such total toleration is neither possible nor desirable. And for that law order and for a law order to forsake its self protection is both wicked and suicidal. End quote. Defending Madison, Rush Dooney correctly observed that politicians understand that each group votes its conscience and its or pocketbook. The politicians know that there is no neutrality. Factions are a denial of the myth of the myth of neutrality. He argues, this is a correct observation he called such politicians hypocrites. This is an uh, unfair accusation. If they are hypocrites, then anyone who defends the US Constitution while also denying neutrality is equally vulnerable to this accusation of hypocrisy. In the American political tradition, factions are an institutional affirmation of neutrality. Rushduni knew very well where the theory of the politics of faction comes from, James Madison's Federalist 10. But his love of the Constitution made him a necessary supporter of Madison. In one of the most startling about-faces in intellectual history, page 68 versus page 73, he assured us that Madison did not believe in neutrality. Quote, First of all, Madison denied the doctrine of neutralism. He denied the Enlightenment faith in the objectivity of reason, which, in Christian terms, he saw as inalienably tied to self-love. Man's reasoning is thus not objective reasoning; it is personal reasoning, and, reasoning, and thus will be governed by the nature of man rather than an abstract concept of rationality. This, quite frankly, end quote. this quite frankly makes no sense. If you doubt me, read it again. If taken literally, it would lead to a dead end for all public policy, institutional paralysis, and the name of co- constitutional law. If a civil government makes any decisions, it must do so in terms of a particular moral and legal framework. It usually does so in the name of the common good. There is no such thing as neutral common good. Madison hated the churches, hated the concept of Christendom, and self-consciously devised the Constitution to create multiple factions that would cancel each other out. But he had previously, but he obviously had to make a crucial though unstated assumption that whatever remains after the factions had canceled themselves out is the common good, the religiously neutral common good. The fact that Madison did not appeal to an abstract concept of rationality is irrelevant. The framers, both individually and as a faction, always balanced their appeals to abstract rationality with an appeal to historical experience. This, as Van argues, is what covenant-breaking men have done from the beginning. This is the old Permedius Heraclitus dualism. Madison appealed to reason, experience, common sense, morality, and any other slogan he could get his hands on. Quote, the free system of government we have established is so congenial with reason, with common sense, and with universal feeling that it must produce approbation and a desire of imitation as avenues may be found for the truth to the knowledge of nations. End quote. So did his colleagues. These men were politicians, first and foremost. If a slogan would sell the Constitution, good. If a brilliant idea would, excellent. If a con- convoluted or improbable argument would, fine. It was all just, it was all grist for the Unitarian mill. You, Christians should not be deceived, especially self-deceived. James Madison was a covenant-breaking genius, and the heart and soul of his genius was his commitment to religious neutralism. He devised a constitution that for two centuries has fooled even the most perceptive Christian social philosophers of each generation into thinking that Madison was not what he was, a Unitarian theocrat whose goal was to snuff out the civil influence of the Trinitarian churches wherever they did not support his brainchild. For two centuries, his demonic plan has worked. Rush equating of Enlightenment rationalism with a priori rationalism And then his denial that Americans ever affirmed a priori rationalism was at the heart of his general myth that there was never a serious enlightenment in colonial America. It was also at the heart of the traditional conservative myth that Burkean conservatism was not part of the enlightenment. Both views are myths. Burke was in correspondence with all the major figures of the Scottish enlightenment. They were all intellectual colleagues. They were all members of the right wing of the enlightenment, just as F.A. Hayek was. There was no one left on either side of the Atlantic who was publicly preaching the Puritan view of the covenant, meaning law covenant law and covenant oaths. They had all returned to the leeks and onions of Egypt. The point is, in order to make public policy, there must be a concept of the common good. Biblically, there are only two choices available, a covenant keeping common good or a covenant-breaking common good. The best that can be said for a covenant-breaking common good is that it may correspond outwardly to God's revealed law standards for public policy. It is therefore a common grace, common good. But as Christianity fades in influence, and as covenant breakers become more consistent, this element of common grace will necessarily fade. This is what happened all over the world as Christianity has been replaced by either right-wing enlightenment, empiricism, experimentalism, or left-wing enlightenment, a prioriism. It does not make any long-term difference whether the legal system is based on a humanistic common law or humanistic Napoleonic law. The end result is humanism. There is no neutrality. The Question of Sovereignty Rush Dooney's rewriting of U.S. history went on from the beginning. In the Institutes of Biblical Law, he said that, quote, the presidential oath of office and every other oath of office in the United States was in earlier years recognized precisely as coming under the Third Commandment and, in fact, invoking it. By taking the oath, a man promised to abide by his word and his obligations even as God is faithful to his word. If he failed by his oath of office, the public official invoked divine judgment and the curse of the law upon himself, End quote. This is presidential mytho-history. Rush Duny's view of, the, of U.S. political history was heavily influenced by a bizarre idea that he picked up in a speech by President John Quincy Adams, who shared his president, his president father's Unitarian theology. So far as I know, no one else has maintained the following interpretation. The U.S. Constitution rests on no concept of God because the framers believe that only God has legal sovereignty. In his brief chapter on sovereignty, Rush Duny wrote this of American thought during the 1780s, quote, legal sovereignty was, def- was definitely denied. He said this distrust of legal sovereignty was both early medieval and Calvinist. He offered no evidence for this statement. The thesis is sufficiently peculiar that some reference to primary source documentation is mandatory, but none was offered. He refused to define what he meant by legal sovereignty, which makes things even more difficult. He cited some historians on Americans' opposition to the sovereign state, but it is clear from the context that their hostility was to a centralized monopolistic sovereignty, which is not the point Rushduni was trying to make. The question Rushduni attempted for three decades to avoid answering from the historical record is this one. Why did the framers refuse to include a Trinitarian oath? If the states had such oaths, and they did, and the Patriot Party regarded the colonies as legal, sovereign civil governments under the king, which is the thesis of this independent republic then, why not, then why not impose the oath requirement nationally? The presence of an oath is basic to any covenant, as Rushdie knew. The question is, who is the identifiable sovereign in the federal covenant? And the answer of the framers was clear: quote, "We the people, not we the states, but we the people." It is right there in the preamble: We the people." Patrick Henry recognized what was implicitly being asserted in the preamble. In the Virginia debate over ratification in 1788, he spoke out against ratification. He warned against the implications of quote, "We the people." quote. "'Give me leave to demand. What right had they to say, we the people, instead of we the states? "'States are the characteristics and the soul of a confederation. "'If the states be not the agents of this compact, it must be one great consolidated national government of the people of all the states. "'Had the delegates, who were sent to Philadelphia, a power to propose a consolidated government instead of a confederacy, "'were they not deputed by states and not by the people?' The assent of the people in their collective capacity is not necessary to the formation of a federal government. The people have no right to enter into leagues, alliances, or confederations. They are not the proper agents for this purpose. States and sovereign powers are the only proper agents for this kind of government. Show me an instance where the people have exercised this business. Has it not always gone through the legislatures? This, therefore, ought to depend on the consent of the legislatures." Henry said emphatically of the delegates to the Philadelphia Convention, quote, The people gave them no power to use their name. That they exceeded their power is perfectly clear, end quote. Rush-Juny, for all his praise of Henry's Christianity, steadfastly refused to discuss the religious and judicial foundation of Henry's op- opposition to ratification. This was not an oversight on Rushduni's part. He knew exactly why Henry objected. Henry knew, there was, Henry knew where this new government was headed, and so it has. The Constitution was ratified under the presumption of the sovereignty of the people. But it was more than presumption. It is right there at the beginning of the document. Here is why there is no Trinitarian oath in the Constitution. The framers were operating under the legal fiction that the sovereign people, not the God of the Bible, had authorized the new national covenant. We the people were not the vassals of the great king in this treaty. We the people were the great king, and there shall be no other gods beside we the people. Thus the framers outlawed religious oaths outlawed. Yet this crucial constitutional provision is rarely mentioned today. The humanist defenders of the Constitution automatically assume it, and the Christian defenders either do not recognize its importance or else do not want to face its obvious implications. Instead, the debate has focused on Congress and the freedom of religion. This provision is not the heart of the Constitutional Covenant. It is merely an application of it. Only Earthly Sovereignty It was hardly the case that the framers had no concept of earthly legal sovereignty. It was that they had only a concept of earthly legal sovereignty. They wanted divine rights, not of kings, not of legislatures, but of the people. The divine right of king's doctrine meant that no one and no institution could appeal any decision of the king. He was exclusively sovereign under God. This was exactly what the oath of Article 6, Clause 3 was intended to convey. No appeal. The national government was the final voice of the people for it operated under the treaty of the great collective king, the Constitution. This was why the framers insisted on requiring an oath of allegiance to the Constitution that made illegal any judicial allegiance to God by federal officers. The oath made the federal government sovereign. This is exactly what Hamilton announced in Federalist 27. Yet Rushduni never abandoned this bit of mytho-history regarding the idea of sovereignty in the early American period in order to justify his defense of the Constitution. He made Orthodox Christian theologians out of the framers. The Constitution is unique in world history in that there is no mention of sovereignty, because sovereignty was recognized as being an attribute of God. Indeed, sovereignty truly was seen by them as an attribute of God, and they identified this God in the preamble the people the transformation of Rushduni's biblical judicial theology of the early 1970s into a theological defense of judicial neutrality in the late 1980s was accurately predicted by Rushduni, quote, if a doctrine of authority embodies contradictions within itself, then it is evident eventually bound to fall apart as the diverse strains war against one another. This has been a continuing part of the various crises of western civilization because the biblical doctrine of authority has been comp- has been compromised by greco-roman humanism the tensions of authority have been sharper and bit sharp and bitter End quote. no sharper and no more bitter than in the remarkable case of rushduni versus rushduni a matter of polytheism rushduni began the nature of the american system with this observation quote, The concept of a secular state was virtually non-existent in 1776 as well as in 1787 when the Constitution was written, and no less so when the Bill of Rights was adopted. To read the Constitution as the charter for a secular state is to misread history and to misread it radically. The Constitution was designed to perpetuate a Christian order." He never retreated from this position. Indeed, he had escalated his commitment to it, so much so that he undercut the covenantal foundation of the institutes of biblical law. The problem with the U.S. Constitution was and is polytheism. Rushduni described the problem of political polytheism, quote, modern political orders are polytheistic imperial states, but the churches are not much better. To hold, as the churches do, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Lutheran, Calvinist, and all others virtually, that the law was good for Israel, but that Christians and the Church are under grace and without law, or under some higher, newer law, is implicit polytheism." But he always refused to identify the obvious polytheism of the Constitution. Thus he has had to explain modern political pluralism as a deviation from the Constitution rather than its inevitable product. The ratification of the US Constitution in June of 1788 created a new nation based on a new covenant. It placed the new nation under a newer, higher law. The nation had broken with its Christian judicial roots by covenanting with a new god, the sovereign people. There would be no other god tolerated in the political order. There would be no appeal beyond this sovereign god. That collective god, speaking through the federal government, began its inevitable expansion, predicted by the anti-federalists, most notably Patrick Henry. The secularization of the Republic began in earnest. This process has not yet ceased. Nevertheless, the surrender to secular humanism was not an overnight process. The rise of Unitarian abolitionism, the coming of the Civil War, the advent of Darwinism, the growth of immigration, the spread of the franchise, the development of the public school system, and a host of other social and political influences have all worked to transform the interdenominational American civil religion into into a religion not fundamentally different from the one that Jeroboam set up. So that the people of the northern kingdom might not journey to Jerusalem in Judah to or offer sacrifices, First Kings twelve tw- twenty-six thirty-one. The golden calves may not be on the hilltops, hilltops today, but the theology is the same. Religion exists to serve the needs of the state, and the state is sovereign over the material things of this world. There are many forms of idol worship. The worship of the U.S. Constitution has been a popular form of this ancient practice, especially in conservative Christian circles. The sanctions of the pre-constitutional colonial covenants are still binding in God's court. One cannot break covenant with the great king. He will bring additional negative corporate sanctions unless these original covenants are renewed. This, however, requires that we break covenant with the present God of this age, the people. The people are under God as legally protected vassals. If this is not acknowledged covenantally and formally, then the common people will eventually find themselves under tyrants as legally unprotected vassals. Anabaptism or Covenantalism? Why did Rush Dooney steadfastly refuse to see this? The easiest explanation is Covenantal. He always refused to acknowledge the ecclesiastical aspects of theocratic civil government. He correctly saw that the institutional church should not give orders to the state, but he never faced the hard question of the suffrage. How can non-Trinitarians be allowed to vote in a theocratic nation? Obviously they would not be allowed to vote. Those not under the covenant should not be allowed to impose civil sanctions. This raises the question of which covenantal authority, or more to the point, authorities. Who is to determine whether a person is a Christian? There can only be one Bible-based answer, a Trinitarian local assembly or synod. A person can be regarded judicially as a Christian only if he is a member in good standing in a local assembly or presbytery. Everyone else is outside a church covenant and therefore cut off from the sacraments of self-excommunication. Judicially speaking, a person who does not have legal access to the sacraments is not a Christian, nor is someone who refuses to take the sacraments. Men cannot lawfully search other men's hearts. They must make public decisions and judgments in terms of other man's professions of faith and their outward obedience to God's law. God's law requires people to be baptized, to subordinate themselves to, the, to a church, and to take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Those who refuse are outside the church covenant. Therefore, in a theocratic republic, they would not be entitled to impose civil sanctions. This raises the other question that he has always avoided. The state must identify which churches are Trinitarian and therefore whose members are authorized to vote. A Christian republic inevitably must face the question analogous to the one today disturbing the state of Israel, who is a Jew. Conclusion on this dual point, the question of civil sanctions and ecclesiastical sanctions, Rush Dooney remained conspicuously silent throughout his career, but his actions in the 1980s indicate that he sided with the Baptists and Anabaptists in American history, i.e. church membership as having nothing to do with voting or holding civil office. This conclusion led him straight into the pluralistic arms of Roger Williams. There is no halfway house between John Winthrop and Roger Williams. There is no halfway covenant. There is no neutrality. Instead, there are church sacra- sacraments. These are the foundation of Christian civilization, not the franchise, not the gold standard, not the patriarchal family, not the tithe to prayer church ministries, and not independent Christian education, the sacraments. Deny this and you deny the biblical church covenant as well as the biblical civil covenant. Rush Duny implicitly denied both. The sign of this denial is his lifelong designation of the US Constitution as an implicitly Christian covenant, meaning a halfway national covenant. This was what the Articles of Confederation constituted. The, con- the, continua- the Constitution is apostate. 2004 Note This essay appeared as Appendix B in Political Polytheism. Except for a few words added for clarification, I did not revise this appendix except to 1 add footnote 28, 2 replace founders with framers, and 3 shift verb tenses to the past tense due to Rushduni's death in 2001. He did not respond to this 1989 essay, which was always his policy, never respond to critics. It is an unwise policy strategically. It makes it look as though you cannot respond. Of course, if you really cannot respond, then the policy makes sense. Nevertheless, an author can publish clarifications regarding what he believes and does not believe in response to inaccurate representations of his position. Rush refused to do this from 1989 until his death in 2001. I think the reason for silence, is that he could not reconcile his conflicting positions, his biblical presuppositionalism versus his defense of the Constitution. He never wavered in his defense of the Constitution, from this independent republic until the end of his life. He sacrificed the basics of his philosophy, Van Til's presuppositionalism, Calvin's covenant theology, biblical law, and the idea that neutrality is always a myth on the altar of this false, false deity, the U.S. Constitution. It was a high price to pay. Quote, George Washington, 1786. A letter which I have just received from General Knox, who had just returned from Massachusetts, whether he had been sent by Congress, consequent of the com- commotion in that state, is replete with melancholy information of the temper and designs of a considerable part of that people. Among other things, he says, Their creed is that the property of the United States has been protected from confiscation of Britain by the joint exertions of all, and therefore ought to be the common property of all. And he, and he that attempts opposition to this creed is an enemy to equity and justice and ought to be swept off from the face of the earth. How melancholy is, how melancholy is the reflection that in no so short a space we should have made a, such large strides towards fulfilling the prediction of our transledic foe. Leave them to themselves and their government will soon dissolve, they say. Will not wise and good strive hard to avert this evil? Or will their soapiness suffer ignorance? And the arts of self-interested designating... Designing disaffected and and desperate characters to involve this rising empire in wretchedness and contempt? What stronger evidence can be given of the want of energy in our governments than these disorders? If there exists not a power to check them, what security has a man for life, liberty, or property? To... To you, I am sure, I need not add, aught on the subject. The consequences of a lax or inefficient government are too obvious to be dealt on. Thirteen sovereignties pulling against each other and all tugging at the the federal head will soon bring ruin on the whole, whereas a liberal and energetic constitution, well-guarded and closely watched to prevent encroachments, might restore us to that degree of respectability and consequence to which we had a fair claim and the brightest prospect of attaining," end quote.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. for Christ and His Kingdom.